it's half a century since Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman wrote an opinion article entitled The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits. With me to discuss this are four of the world's foremost thinkers on the subject. Professor John Kay is one of Britain's leading economists. His work centres around the interplay between economics, finance, business and society. His most recent books are Radical Uncertainty, written with Mervyn King, and Greed is Dead, with Paul Collier. Joanne Chula is a professor at Rutgers Business School, of which I think Milton Friedman was an alumni, correct me if I'm mistaken. She is the director for the Institute of Ethical Leadership, and she's founding faculty member at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond, where she teaches courses on ethics, critical thinking, and leadership. Brad Cornell is Emeritus Professor of Finance at UCLA, he has been involved in a number of challenging assignments involving the application of finance theory and his research applies financial economic models of incomplete information to the problem of ethnic discrimination, among other things. Guido Palazzo is a professor of business ethics at the University of Lausanne. In his research, he is passionate about the dark side of the force, which I like, and examines an unethical, unethical decision-making from various angles. His studies include those on human rights violations in global supply chains. The article represents, in my mind, um, an argument against corporate social responsibility, perhaps not in its entirety, but certainly broadly. In the last 50 years, of course, terminologies have changed somewhat. So CSR has been to some extent replaced by ESG but I'd say that they're broadly similar enough. And what I hope to do is have a first principles debate so that we can get beneath um, these concepts and hopefully provide some form of bedrock for corporate executives to use in, in their ethical decision-making. Before I turn to the panel, I'd like to do a quick poll. Do you broadly agree with Milton Friedman's article entitled, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits? Yes, I broadly agree. No, overall, I'm opposed. <clears throat> well, that's what I'm here to decide. And everyone's voting. Interesting. So 17% broadly agree. 69% are overall opposed. And 14% are here to decide. <laughs> Great. So... I'm going to start by asking each of the panelists in turn to provide some uninterrupted opening remarks on the Friedman Doctrine. So um, if I could ask Brad for you to kick us off, please. We're good to go. Okay. Well, I, I think I'm probably in that 17%, but let me start with something where I, I do slightly disagree with Professor Friedman, and that is his characterization of maximizing profit. That's not the way we in financial economics think of it anymore because profit is too ill-defined. Profit when? Profit next year, profit five years from now, profit 10 years from now and so forth. The way we approach this problem is to say that in a free enterprise economy, what companies are trying to do is maximize shareholder value. And shareholder value is really the present value of the stream of all future profits. And when you think of it that way, value is by definition a long-term concept. There can't be any short-term value because all future profits enter. And to maximize the value of a company, uh, executives must take account of long, the long-run impacts of their decisions. 
And that means that if, for example, if they treat their employees poorly uh, this year, they're gonna lose employees and that's gonna in the long run destroy value. If they don't respect their customers' privacy, they'll lose customers and that will reduce their long run value. And if they fail to take account, let's say of environmental impacts of their decisions, that may bring down regulatory <clears throat> limitations and that will reduce the long run value. So when we think of the right criterion, which is maximize uh, shareholder value, some of this distinction between pursuing um, ESG type goals and pursuing uh, value maximization disappears, but it doesn't disappear entirely. So let me take us to a, <clears throat> a short thought experiment, which hopefully uh, will be interesting to the, the attendees and my colleagues can comment on it. Here's the way this thought experiment works. It's a very simple company. It's a delivery company. And the only decision it has to make, and I'm focusing on the E part of ESG, the only decision it has to make is whether to use gas or electric delivery vehicles. The company can compute the total cost of either one. And the question is, does the company follow the Friedman doctrine of maximizing shareholder value, or does it diverge from that in order to uh, take account of uh, environmental issues? And, and I've got three scenarios to run through here. In the first scenario, they do their uh, valuation analysis and the electric vehicles are cheaper. Well, if the electric vehicles are cheaper, value maximization says use the electric vehicles. And in that case, there's no conflict with broader corporate executives that take account of, let's say, uh, uh, CO2 emissions because they both lead to the same conclusion, use the electric vehicles. That's scenario one. Scenario two, there is a carbon tax that reflects the external cost of burning fossil fuels. Let's say that William Nordhaus is the prime minister of this country. He's figured out what the social cost of uh, burning fossil fuels is, and it's reflected in the tax. But even after the tax, the gas vehicles are still cheaper. So value maximization says use the gas vehicles. Some of my students say, but ESG says use the electric vehicles. That is not correct from a purely economic point of view. From a purely economic point of view, even taking account of the social effects, it's better to use the gas vehicles. That's because the government will collect the revenues from the carbon tax and that can go to other social benefits. And even after reflecting these external costs, it's still better to use the gas vehicles. So once again, from an economic standpoint, there's no dispute here. If the external cost of the fossil fuels is reflected in prices, then value maximization works and it's what people should follow. Now where it gets confusing, and I'm sure my colleagues will wanna weigh in on this, is scenario three. In scenario three, the gas vehicles are cheaper, but there, there is no tax uh, that reflects the cost of using them. There are social externalities which are not priced. And in fact, in some countries, there may even be subsidies to using fossil fuels. So value maximization, of course, says use the cheaper one, use the gas vehicles. But a broader ESG objective may say use the more expensive vehicles, even though you're gonna damage shareholders 
because of the social benefits of it. And this is where I think the rubber meets the road, where value maximization and a broader social uh, criterion diverge. But here are the problems that arise. If you're gonna tax shareholders, and if you actually tax employees and customers as well, if you use the more expensive uh, electric vehicles, because they'll bear part of the cost, how much customer money should be used to subsidize these electric vehicles? Second, what training do senior managers have to make decisions regarding the costs and benefits of climate change and other externalities associated with fossil fuels? If I'm running a social media company, uh, my godson runs the social media company Snap. He's incredibly busy with his job. How's he gonna know how to take account of climate change? Three, what if different managers reach different conclusions? Some may be socialists and think the environmental impact is very important. Others may be right-wing uh, free market people who think it shouldn't be paid any attention at all. How do you reach a, a, a consensus? Four, what right do corporate <coughs> managers have to make social policy? That's in effect what they're doing when they're taxing their shareholders to promote the electric vehicles. They've but not been elected or appointed. So my conclusion, and this is why I'm part of the 17%, I suppose, that managers who believe that we do not have a, a, appropriate rules of the game, that we do not properly price externalities, should definitely take that view and attempt to make it part of social policy. They should vote for candidates they think will promote the right policies. They should attempt to get taxes uh, levied if that's the appropriate policy. But somehow making corporations the philosopher kings that are going to decide public policy on their own, in my view, is a mistake. So, Ultimately, I would agree with Professor Friedman. The rules of the game have to be set through a fair democratic process. And then once the rules have been properly set, uh, private corporations should go back to attempting to maximize shareholder value. And that does it for me, Ross, at least my opening comments. Thank you. Great, thanks. Thanks, Brad. That's a very clear take from, uh, from an economist and segues quite nicely. Um, to Joanne, uh, more on the philosophical side of things. Joanne, can I pass to you? Yes, thank you. And, and Brad, thank you. That was a, a really nice defense of some of the points in Friedman. I'm a philosopher, so I'm going to look at it in a somewhat different way. I actually took Ross's question seriously and uh, looked at the argument itself. I've been teaching this argument for many, many years, and it's a fascinating one. And there are some really strong things in it that are important to the field of business ethics. Uh, when I started working in this area over 35 years ago, uh, it, it, Friedman raises some of the most fundamental questions in business ethics. Uh, first of all, the question of what are the responsibilities of businesses? Um, what, is the kind of, what kind of moral agency does a corporation have? Those were very important parts, especially in the early days of business ethics to ask. Uh, the second thing that's interesting about this is the context of it. It's a newspaper article by a very brilliant economist, and I think there are some faults in it because it is a much more casual writing than probably the more sophisticated work in economics. We have to ask ourselves, to what extent is this a period piece? 
what does the historical context have to say uh, about this kind of argument? And that, of course, is the other question of, is there something about the period of time that he was writing that made it a stronger argument than perhaps today? But the strength, of, the other great strength of the piece is it forces us to consider who ought to be responsible for what. Uh, as was pointed out by Brad, there's a lot of dangers in business making social policy, not only their own knowledge, but the political questions in a democracy of whether they ought to be doing it. And I would add a third somewhat economic consideration that if, if businesses had social responsibilities, such as let's say running schools, uh, that could be very dangerous because what happens when the business goes out of business? Uh, we want our well-being of society to be contingent on government because it is supposed to be something that goes on uh, over time. And businesses, as we know, come and go. So I wouldn't want to rely on business to take care of the public good. And I think Friedman's exactly right about that. Um, but the question is, uh, as we go on, is, is Friedman's article always seems to assume a zero-sum game, that social responsibilities must always go against the interests of employers and profits. And he gives examples about, and I, I love, by the way, in, in today's world, I cannot imagine a business thinking that they can't raise their prices because it might contribute to inflation. Obviously, we think of inflation in a different way today, but it just strikes me as a strange argument. Uh, the second one he says is, you know, imagine reducing pollution more than necessary. Uh, he seems to assume that if you do that in a business, it's going to have all sorts of bad effects, lowering wages, increasing prices, affecting consumers, lowering profits, affecting owners, and all sorts of horrible things will ensue. Uh, and his central notion is that you're spending other people's money. Well, it, it's kind of interesting to look at that. Um, the idea of reducing pollution more than necessary, because in, in business ethics, there are several sort of classic cases about businesses that did exactly that. And uh, Cummins Engine, by the way, that's one of the more famous old cases in business ethics. And what's compelling about that case is the fact that Cummins did reduce pollution more than necessary. And it turned out to be a competitive advantage because they had the foresight, the strategic foresight to see that it would eventually uh, come around that there would be regulations, which is really speaks to one of the points I think Brad was trying to make with his examples. So there are ways in which uh, social responsibilities are related to corporate strategy. Now, the question is, uh, you know, does this, does it always make them money? And of course, that I think is a tricky thing. People who have been doing research in business ethics for many years have tried to show that ethics pays. And we can't always show that. So that, of course, is a problem. I find it amusing that he mentions the GM crusade in this. I, I always found that a fascinating case. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, this was a crusade by Ralph Nader and Nader's Raiders. And uh, it was about a car that they produced called the Corvair that was very unsafe on the road. And Nader went in to GM uh, stockholders meetings and tried to make the company, tried to have proxy votes, tried to get stockholders to make the company uh, 
decide to focus on safer and cleaner cars. Uh, GM didn't go for this and neither did the stockholders and they spent their money on having Nader followed around by a private detective. Uh, they got sued by Nader, they lost money, and of course Nader prevailed and all sorts of legislation came into play about auto safety. Uh, so there's a lot of ways in which uh, Friedman argues that social responsibility is short-sighted, but when we look at actual cases, we see that, that strategic social responsibility is far-sighted. Um, so what Friedman wants us to do is stay at the moral minimum, and that moral minimum is, as I said, strategically unwise in many cases. Now here's where I get to the part of the argument that I find the most fun as a philosopher and someone who does ethics, and that's when we get near the end. There is this very odd notion that Friedman has. It's a kind of moral purity where he seems to almost get himself in a tizzy over the fact that companies could have corporate social responsibility that's actually initiatives that are good for them. The hypocrisy of it, he tells us, is, is horrendous. And for some reason, if you're going to be socially responsible, it shouldn't be good for you. Well, that assumption really doesn't make sense. Sometimes uh, he seems to have missed in Adam Smith that there is enlightened self-interest. And I think most companies that engage in corporate social responsibility are not moral martyrs who've decided to lose profits to do something good, but rather they're people who want to uh, do things that are good for them, uh, good for all of their stakeholders, et cetera. That's why the theory that, that emerges in business ethics that responds to this is stakeholder theory, which is also always looked at as a theory that's also related to strategy. So ultimately, when we get to the end of this argument, we see that there's this assumption that is very much an individualist argument as well as a kind of libertarian argument that if everybody took care of themselves, if all the businesses just took care of themselves and followed the law and, and did what businesses were supposed to be, everything would be fine. The problem with this is it's a kind of Robinson Crusoe argument. It's as if we all lived on desert islands where nothing else touched us. There was a lot of water around us but we don't live on desert islands. We can't take care of ourselves without the interactions with others. And that goes for individuals as well as companies. Last year, Tim Cook from Apple uh, gave a speech where he said, sometimes when governments seem to be failing at things, businesses have to take up, the have to step up, he said. Now, that's a very controversial notion going back to Friedman, one we have to examine carefully. But the real issue, I think, is, is not really whether a businesses ought to be socially responsible or, or not. The real question is whether, um, is when they should be and how they should be socially responsible. As we look at this time of COVID-19, we see that if businesses behave the way Friedman wanted them to behave, they would find themselves in quite a bit of trouble. They've got sick employees, they have people working at home. There are all sorts of things that are affecting the way their businesses run. And if they were only concerned about their stockholders and they were only concerned about the profitability of their business, uh, not in the way that Brad described value, but in the way that Friedman does, um, I think they'd find themselves in quite a bit of trouble. And just as the human beings who work in the business 
would also probably not feel very good about sticking to the Friedman line. So in closing, I'd say, there's a lot of things people love about this argument. They love the fact that it's simple. It's a, my students, a lot of my MBA students adore this article. They say that's exactly what should go on in business. The rest is just messy. But so much of this is really wishful thinking about business and non-systemic thinking. Businesses exist in a system. So while I, I look at this not as, I'm not an either percentage group, I, I am grateful to this article for the many things that it highlights that are important about corporate social responsibility. Um, but I also think that in terms of the realities of business, uh, it's a little naive and no business can really go it alone without engaging in many of the elements of corporate social responsibility. So with that, uh, I'm pleased to turn it over to an economist. Thank you. Very thought-provoking. Thank you very much, Joanne. If we move uh, further west, John, can I, yeah, move, move on to you. You can indeed. Uh, Joanne has talked about, as it were, the moral critique of this kind of argument. But there are elements in that of an operational critique, and it's the operational critique which I actually want to focus on. <clears throat> Brad set out right at the beginning, I think correctly, that if you interpret, if you make sense of Friedman, it has to be about maximizing shareholder volume rather than profit in any particular time period. So how do you go about maximizing shareholder volume? Well, he gives us a very simple illustration of how you might do that with a choice between an electric and a gas vehicle. And to make that decision, all you have to do is forecast gas prices for the next, however long the length of life of the vehicle is, 20 years, and electricity prices for the same 20-year period. Well, good luck with that. And then there's the carbon tax introduced as well. And uh, in order to impose a carbon tax, the government, or we'll come to the qualifications of that in a moment, someone has to estimate the actual cost of putting a ton of carbon in the, in the atmosphere. And good luck with that. And then you have to iron out some wrinkles in relation to the tax, like is it levied on carbon production, carbon consumption, and who is it levied by and where? And then you have to persuade most of the governments of the world to agree to that. Well, good luck with that as well. The truth is that we can't do this because the sums simply cannot be done. And if we move into the, the real world and take that 20-year horizon a moment, if we go back 20 years and ask who has created the most shareholder volume in the last 20 years, uh, we come up with Apple, Amazon, Google, three companies that have not only created most, much of the shareholder volume in the last 20 years, but much of the shareholder volume that has ever been created in the history of the world. So where were they 20 years ago? Well, Apple was pretty much on its knees. Uh, Amazon was five years old. Google was two years old. Were Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Sergey Brin and Larry Page sitting down with these kind of spreadsheets, computing the net present value of um, free cash flows uh, for the next 20 years? I don't think so. 
I think what they were doing was Steve Jobs was trying to create the coolest product he could imagine, uh, which in that 20 years ago was actually, he was working on creating uh, the iPod. Jeff Bezos was trying to build the everything store and trying to shove books out the door. Uh, and Sergey Brin and Larry Page, I think, were trying to create some pretty smart algorithms. What all of, all of them were trying to do was to build fantastic businesses. And of course, all three of them succeeded. Let's contrast that with people who actually tried to take the Friedman Doctrine seriously. The example which I must often use is ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries, which was actually Britain's leading industrial company for most of the 20th century. And for most of that period, they had a clear statement of what their mission and objective was. And that mission was described as the responsible application of chemistry and related science to business. But in the early 90s, that company called the shareholder Value Buck. They changed their mission statement to our job is to create shareholder value by focusing on businesses in which we have a competitive advantage. What they did was they hived off the pharmaceutical business, which had actually become the most interesting part of the company. And uh, the, the rump of the company was left in more traditional chemicals. Uh, it was very successful for a period. ICI's share price peaked in 1997, declined steadily thereafter, until in 2007, the rather pathetic rump of the company was taken over by a Dutch company, Exxonobel. That was ICI's story. Another British story is of Marks and Spencer, which almost everyone around the world has heard of, as the iconic uh, British retailer of the 20th century. Unfortunately, they caught, caught the shareholder value bug too in the early 1990s. And under a new chief executive called Rick Greenbrae, they decided they had a target of making a billion pounds of profits. So they edged up prices, they squeezed their suppliers, they started moving some of their um, uh, offshore production offshore. And once again, it worked for a bit. In 1998, they actually achieved their billion pound profit target. And the share, the price of the shares hit six pounds a share. Then unfortunately, sales fell off a cliff only in one year since then has the company made a billion pounds of profits and the shares which peaked at £6 in 1998 are now at £1.25. I can tell this story over and over again. I can take it, tell it of the company that was regarded as the paradigm of shareholder value creation at the time, which was of course General Electric. And we now understand uh, that the extraordinary performance of General Electric was in fact largely based on a financial services business, which after 2008 was shown to be essentially a chimera, uh, and that had served to disguise the weaknesses in turn created by the cost reduction and lack of forward planning and investment in GE's more traditional business. So the share price, which had zoomed from $2 to um, $50, well, I've now looked, it's been having a rather bad week this week, and it's now just struggling to say above $5 a share. All these people 
in their attempt to purportedly create shareholder value, actually destroyed masses of shareholder value. And actually, these are not atypical cases. I can tell this story, as I said, over and over again. I could tell it of Britain's GEC, distinguished from the American General Electric, Britain's British General Electric Company, which um, um, was Britain's second largest industrial company in 1990, and which went essentially the same way as ICI. I could tell a story like this about Boeing. I could tell a story about this about Sears. I can tell it over and over again. What uh, business is about is actually about creating great businesses. And that's what Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin and Larry Page actually did. They weren't about creating shareholder value. They were about building great businesses and they did, and they created masses and masses of shareholder value along the way. And that's what the earlier generation of business leaders that had created these businesses actually did. It's what uh, um, uh, Harry McGowan had done at ICI. It's what Simon Marks had done at Marks and Spencer. It's what Red Jones and Ralph Cordoner before Jack Welch had done at General Electric. These are people who are dedicated to building successful businesses. British law actually says uh, that the duty of directors is to promote the success of the company for the benefit of the members. And that's the way around it is. If you create a successful company, shareholders and everyone else will benefit from that. I should probably end with a quote from Jack Welch, who famously said, eight years after he'd retired from GE in 2009, and some of the chickens were coming home to roost. Shareholder value, he said, is the dumbest idea in the world. Shareholder value is a result, not a strategy. And he's exactly right on that. And that echoes the words of other people as well. People like Sam Walton, who said, I've concentrated all along on building the finest retailing company that we possibly could, period. Creating a huge personal fortune has never been particularly a goal of mine. And of course, Jeff Bezos adopted the same approach that Sam Walton had adopted 40, 50 years earlier, uh, with the same results, including, particularly in Bezos's case, creating a quite extraordinary personal fortune. Or to go back a bit further, you have George Merck, uh, the uh, chief executive of the Merck pharmaceutical business many years, he said, medicine is for the people. It is not for the profits, he said. The profits follow. And if we have remembered that, they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered it, the larger they have been. That is what, in my view, is the social responsibility of business, to create great businesses, which create returns for investors, serve customers well, are convincing for employees, and the calculations of shareholder value, it's not within the bounds of possibility that we could imagine actually undertaking them. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, and finally, let's move to Guido, uh, if you, yeah. Yes, thanks Ross. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you, John. Um, we could add a few more companies maximizing shareholder value that would even go one 
step further in, in your list, like companies like Enron, Deutsche Bank, or Wells Fargo. So companies who maximize profits so much that at the end they misunderstood the limits of what is right and what is wrong. And that's very often a consequence of maximizing profit. I would like to, do, to make another point, one that we haven't heard before and one that refers to or builds on what Joanne said about seeing Friedman in a historic context. When I was writing my PhD thesis in the, in the middle of the 1990s, for, I wanted to work on, on corporate social responsibility and I, I wrote this thesis with a philosopher in the philosophy department and I started to read uh, all around what I could find in political science, sociology, philosophy. And I was stumbling over a lot of analysis that um, had been written by political scientists like David Held, by philosophers like Jürgen Habermas, by uh, sociologists like Manuel Castells or Ulrich Beck, who were reflecting upon the profound consequences of globalization for our society. And then I went into the CSR, the Corporate Social Responsibility Literature, and I was surprised that even if they went a bit further than Milton Friedman, they somehow reflected one thing he had written in this article, and they took it for granted as well, that companies should follow um, the, the rules of the game in their respective contexts, which is the laws and some, some moral rules that are necessary for economic transactions. So they should follow the law. What the other guys in these other sciences were telling us is, well, the nation state is disappearing. It is weakening, it's eroding. Um, we have multinational corporations suddenly and they are escaping this container of the nation state regulatory system. And nobody in the discussion on, on CSR had taken that into consideration. So what we now had was a situation that companies could pretty much escape from regulation because they could um, bargain with governments as they do until today. They could say, if, if, if you ask me too high taxes, I go somewhere else. If you have too strict laws on pollution, I can go somewhere else. So they became stronger than governments. They could run away from regulation to the lowest regulator. That was one thing. The other element that was uh, striking me was that Milton Friedman had written this theory in the uh, 70s, part of it in the 60s already, at the climax of the fight between communism and capitalism. And of course he was super extreme because any step in the other direction would have been uh, unacceptable from that kind of position. But what he had in mind was a theory of economic transactions within a well-regulated context because it, at his time, um, capitalism existed in, in, in Japan, in the USA, and in parts of Europe. So it was always embedded in more or less well-functioning democracies. Now, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, what happened was that corporations invented global supply chain management. And they stretched out into regions like the Congo, which is a civil war region with no government in, in the parts where they dig the, uh, the, the coltan, into Bangladesh, which is a highly corrupt and weak government, or into China and, and other Iran that are repressive regimes, at least partly. So suddenly, we had capitalism in context that had nothing to do with how Milton Friedman saw the world in the 1970s. And the consequence was that companies suddenly were connected, if not directly involved, in all kinds of human rights violations and atrocities for which they would go to prison in their own countries. And there was no one to regulate them because there, was, there is no global regulator. There's just international law for governments, but not for private actors. So we moved into a kind of regulatory vacuum 
um, which made this idea of Milton Friedman highly dysfunctional. That's point one. Point two, if you look into this article uh, and you look at how he sees environmental issues, pollution, it's almost funny. It's a bit of pollution in the river. So, and if the government wants to regulate that for everyone to create a level playing field, then they should make a law and then the pollution disappears. Now, the world in which we are moving now is a world in which the pollution that for him was local and small and controllable is a threat to our very existence as a human species. Just to go through a, a few bits of information from, from recent months and weeks. Today, the world, uh, the WWF published a study in which they showed that um, 20,000 species of mammals, uh, fish and bird have lost up to 70% um, of, 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 their, of their animals over the last uh, 20 years. A study in, in Germany that was published in Nature says that we have lost 80% of the insects in Germany. Um, the US Army published a study last October saying we are running into a collapse of the US Army and the US infrastructure because of global warming within the next 20 years. Um, another study in Science published in May this year says that most trees that are currently existing on this planet will not survive the next 40 years. So this is not the world in which you pollute the river a bit and then there is a democratic government that will step in and keep you from polluting it if necessary. This is a world in which we are collapsing because we have globalized the narrative of neoliberalism. So these are two elements that connect to, to, to globalization that in my view, uh, of course, were not visible to him, but that make his theory today uh, totally um, inappropriate. That's it. Great, thank you very much, Guido. I've got lots to come back to you all on. Uh, but I wonder if I can just put one question to you all, which is, we all agree that responsibility has to be taken, but where does that responsibility reside? My reading of the article is not that no responsibility needs to be taken, but that it doesn't reside at the corporate level. Brad, please. And, and that's my reading too, Ross. I, mean, I, I agree with Guido that uh, climate change is an absolutely preeminent issue of extreme importance. But I don't want to turn it over to managers of thousands of corporations. This is something that has to be done at the, the governmental level and probably at the international level. And trying to have businesses weigh in on it when they're not prepared and don't have legal standing is just not the way to go. Guido. Look at some of these globalized supply chains. Imagine you are Apple and, and one of your suppliers is a, is a mining company in the Congo. And there is slavery and child labor and civil war around the mines. Now, who is the government who interferes and who should solve these problems? There is no government. So it has to be done by other actors. And who are these other actors? Well, the most powerful actor is in that context, the, the Western mining company. Can the Western mining company say, we just follow the rules of the game? Uh, well, they could, but uh, is that an acceptable argument today? I don't think so. Or if you are um, a company that, that, that uh, produces chocolate and you have your plantation or your farmers somewhere at Ivory Coast and there is child labor all over the place, can you say, let the government solve that problem? Well, the guy, you know exactly what will happen. They will do nothing. They, they don't have the power. They don't have 
the will to regulate you further because you are more powerful as a corporation in that kind of context. But so isn't, there a, isn't there a third way? So we're not saying that governments need to do it. We're not saying that corporations need to do it. But corporations are made up of people. And people can still take ethical decisions. But who are the people if, if you are... Uh, Glencore, the, the mining company in, in, the, in the Congo, who are the people, who, who should be that person uh, who is responsible in that case? It has to be the company. Uh, I see well, no other actors. I suppose, you know, that you, you have a CEO and the CEO is, in one sense, it's a role, but in another sense, it's a human being. And the CEO as a role perhaps just has to follow corporate policy, but the CEO as a human being can take ethical decisions and take a moral stand. And so I wonder if there is that third way. And I think, I wonder if that's what Milton Friedman's arguing. Uh, John, I, I, looks I, like yeah. you want to comment. And John, John first, then Joanne. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure there is in that sense a third way. Uh, we're, we're confronted with two kinds of situations. One is the situation we have in Western democracies where I don't agree with the proposition that where governments are failing to act appropriately, it's up to corporations to step up to the plate. Um, and uh, I think particularly in the United States, but also in much of Europe, the corporate influence on politics is not too small, but too large. I would like to get business out of the business of lobbying in Washington and Brussels the way it does at the moment. On the other hand, Julio um, is talking about um, the situations we face in countries where there is no government in the sense in which we mean government in Britain or the United States or, or Germany. Uh, and uh, in that case, I think there is no alternative for countries which have, want to operate in the Congo, to take his example, of saying, Either we just accept we can't operate at all in these jurisdictions, or we have to take in these jurisdictions some of the responsibilities which would be taken on by a government if, um, uh, if there were a government in a meaningful sense in these countries. So we have to be somewhere in between. And I think what companies have to do uh, when they operate internationally is see if they can operate in a way which is a good by local standards, but consistent with the ethical standards which their executives, their shareholders, their customers would almost all subscribe to. And in way we may well be in some cases, and the Congo isn't getting the result of this, but it is simply too difficult to reconcile these and you can't operate there. But that's a real dilemma which um, uh, corporate executives have to face. And I don't think, Ross, there is another group of people who are in a position to make these kind of decisions. It's the, uh, it's the executives of the corporation which wishes to operate in these jurisdictions to decide whether they can do it consistently with ethical behavior or not. Okay, that I didn't make myself clear. I, I, I meant the same thing, not a third group of people. The same group of people taking individual responsibility, not, hide, not sheltering under, under a kind of an artificial non-human construct, which is the corporation. 
And you can see there, if, if they're acting as individuals rather than in the role of a CEO, suddenly they're taking personal risk because it could be that they're going against what compliance is telling them, for example. And Joanne, anyway, let me move on to you, sorry. Okay, just a couple of short points. First of all, in large corporations, there are whole separate units that are engaged in CSR of specialists and people who actually know the field. So it's not like Friedman's Day where somebody decides to do something good. Secondly, we are living in a fascinating period in America right now because uh, the current administration has dismantled a number of environmental laws. And what I think is going to be interesting is you can burn dirty coal now. You can put more pollution into the air now. You can put uh, coal dust into water and streams. This is all allowed now, so it's all permitted. And the question is, are companies going to say, oh boy, now, uh, now we'll, you know, the energy companies will say, let's, let's fire up those old coal plants because we can use them now. Well, of course they're not going to do it. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And then my last point, when you look at uh, the financial services industry, it's fascinating to hear them talk because the thing they really hate is getting regulated. And I think most businesses don't like being regulated by the government. And I know in financial services, they often say, well, look, we've got to take care of this on our own or the government's going to step in and regulate us. So there's a way, again, in which businesses can think about this that requires them to do things on their own speed and their own time within industries without waiting for the government to step in. And, and some find that highly preferable. Joanne, let me stay with you for a moment. Um, you mentioned that Milton Friedman takes a bit of a zero-sum approach and that sometimes social responsibility can align with corporate responsibility. But in such an instance, um, there's no conflict in the sense there's no moral no. dilemma and so as it plays out there's you know you're, you're not necessarily opposed with the the Friedman worldview and let me add something to that as well which is that the, the vaguely I agree humorous conclusion to the article where he takes umbrage with with people kind of getting kudos from doing good things <laughs> um, but isn't there a moral problem with that insofar as if you're doing something because you want to look good, i.e. and therefore get a good reputation and therefore sell more stuff, uh, isn't, isn't that somewhat immoral because you're, you're presenting yourself as someone that's, as an entity that's doing good because you're good, whereas you're doing good in order to sell stuff? Well, Ross, that's a very sophisticated philosophical question you've asked me and you sound like a good Kantian. Because in one theory of ethics, you know, the only good is when you do something you know, entirely from good intentions. But there's a whole lot of other ways to think about ethics. And if you take that view, then companies, you know, McDonald's has a promotion and they say, we're going to give $1 to every, every sale of a hamburger to this charity. Well, they're doing it to promote their hamburgers, certainly. But they're still giving the money to charity, Ross. And if we preclude that kind of moral action, then you're just saying, oh, don't give the money to charity because it benefits McDonald's. Where's, where's the logic in that um, in terms of how companies operate? So yeah, you may hold your nose a little and say, you know, it kind of stinks. And I, I agree with that. But at the, and everybody nowadays knows the game. 
they know that companies often do promotions and they give to charity and they know that it benefits them in PR in terms of customers. Uh, it's easier to recruit uh, bright young people to companies that behave this way. So there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why you do it, but it doesn't make it unethical and it doesn't undercut the fact that you're actually helping people. So that, that, that argument pops up all the time in business ethics. And I have to say, I have to take the utilitarian approach and say, well, do people actually benefit from it? And if the answer is yes, then it's probably okay. The, the trouble with that, and I find this particularly with ESG rather than CSR, mm -hmm. is that it's, it's, ESG is full of kind of performative contradictions because of this, yeah. because people are able to, I keep saying people, corporations are able to um, wallow in the reflected glory of making moralistic statements and doing moralistic acts, um, but without actually living it or without actually doing a proper, you know, cost benefit analysis of such uh, overtly charitable actions, which in a complex world can very often backfire. And if this is a project that we're undertaking at colossal scale, then, then I just think that a little bit more thought rather than just, you know, reputational gloss needs to come into it. John, is that your hand? It is. <laughs> There's a substantial issue here, I think, which is that I, I agree that a lot of what is called CSR or ESG is essentially performative. And the classic illustration of that for me was I told uh, I remember giving a talk about what happened at ICI in 2006, just before ICI finally disappeared. And I got a follow-up a few days later, later, in the form of a letter from the Vice President for Corporate Social Responsibility at ICI. And to paraphrase, the letter said, we might have screwed up the business, but we did a great job on corporate social responsibility and include the including the brochure, which we've all seen on corporate response, social responsibility, as it was then in this corporation, printed on recycled paper with pictures of happy minority and diverse groups, uh, some of them in wheelchairs. And I thought, you are so far from getting what the real corporate social responsibility of business is, which is to produce goods and services that people want, it is to give satisfying employment to the people who work there. It is to generate returns for investment. That's what the social responsibility of business is about. It is not to subvert democratic governments, either because in order to promote corporate interests or in order to remedy what they believe to be the deficiencies of democratic government. It's about running good businesses. And that's what we need to focus on. And that's my understanding of social responsibility in business. One response to that is that part of what we are arguing and, and your example, Ross, is yes, when, when CSR or anything else is done badly, it's done badly, but that doesn't mean you throw it all out. And so, yeah, you've got to do it right. It has to be all of those things. I totally agree with you, John. It has to do all of those things and it has to be done thoughtfully. Um, yeah, some people do it badly, some people do it in a phony way, but that doesn't mean you throw it all out. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to, to stress too the point that 
much of value creation in business is about relationships. Like John mentioned Amazon. Well, I have a relationship with Amazon. I buy products from them all the time. They deliver them on time. If the product is shoddy, they take it back. They make useful recommendations to me. So that much of business value creation is in properly managing your relationships with people. So there really isn't in many situations a conflict. If Amazon refused to take back a shoddy product, I wouldn't order the next one. If Facebook doesn't protect my privacy, I'll log off. So value creation needs to be thought of in a, in a broad context that includes human relationships. I just keep coming back to this idea of look, whose heads on the block. You know, we, we're only 10 years out of a global financial crisis. And one way of viewing that was that it was a, a result of collective responsibility. And one way of looking at that is that collective responsibility clearly means no responsibility because I'm not aware of many people that, you know, were sent to prison, for example, over the global financial crisis. And so is that not uh, a warning, at least, that perhaps we need to be clearer on where responsibility resides. I'm sorry to ask kind of the same question again, but go, Guido, go. But there are two answers. First, I agree partially because since years I say in the very moment where managers of multinational corporations will go to prison because they have slaves in their supply chain, slavery will stop in their supply chain. Um, that's one point. So we, we have to hold managers responsible. On the other side, um, we give corporations all kinds of rights. And why shouldn't we give them duties as well? And in a globalized world, these duties extend over their duties in a well-regulated context. If you, if you give this responsibility to people, um, companies can escape the responsibility. And you put these people inside the companies, maybe in, in, in a situation where they, they have to manage contradictory things. Um, and that is not possible. So it has, we, and as society, anyway, we do this already, we assign, um, to corporations the responsibility to keep their supply chains clean. We do this already and companies react to the pressure from civil society. So what we see right now is a changing um, context of how we assign legitimacy to organizations. And that is something that also is not considered uh, into the uh, calculation of Milton Friedman. If you don't have legitimacy, that can be very expensive. Yeah. John. I think it's perfectly clear where responsibility for financial crisis lay, and that was with the senior executives of very large financial companies. And the fact that they didn't go to jail is a demonstration of the inadequacy of corporate law for dealing with these kind of situations, uh, not an acquittal of them. I remember, right, I, I'll tell, give two illustrations. I remember going to one event at which the chief executive of a major bank actually said, you know, we were just the waiters at the party. And the remark, which I thought it would be inappropriate to, um, uh, to make, was you got, quite, you got tips that were quite a lot larger than the waiters at the party typically get. Or another event, uh, I, right, this was a, another senior executive of a bank saying to me, Gosh, the regulator should have stopped us from doing that. And I thought, what? 
um, responsibility for proper conduct for social responsibility lies with uh, senior executives of corporations. There shouldn't be any doubt about that. And I think we have, unfortunately, and the financial sector has been the extreme example of this, got into a frame of mind in which if the corporations write very large checks in settlements, that somehow reckon to absorb of the corporation and the, more importantly, the individuals in the corporation from further responsibility for what they've done. I think we need to stop that. John, you, you went into some detail in your opening remarks about the detrimental effect of uh, perhaps a fixation with profit maximization that's had on some notably large companies. Um, I'm not sure though that that's entirely in conflict with Friedman insofar as um, you can have a goal and you can have a strategy and they're, and they're different things. And you, your strategy may be excellent customer service, but if your goal is excellent customer service, then pretty soon the business doesn't become, is no longer sustainable in the kind of, in the literal sense. And in that sense, Milton Friedman's very simple focus on profits means that, well, a very unsophisticated view of it, just if you're going headlong towards profits, yes, you're running business into the ground, but if you view that as a goal, and then you have a sophisticated corporate strategy to get there, then they're not necessarily incompatible. Um, no, I think that's right, Ross. But let's remember how the Friedman Doctrine actually went. And we ought to understand that the Friedman Doctrine was actually part of what was essentially a concerted campaign in the 1970s and early 80s uh, to create a different frame of reference for thinking about corporations. It goes along with uh, the famous Lewis Powell Memorandum in 1971, which links back to the remarks you made earlier about uh, Nader and the attack on, on corporations. The Friedman Doctrine goes into the, the notorious Jensen-Meckling article in 1976, which talks about the need to align incentives of, um, of corporate executives with those of shareholders, and which provides the basis for the widespread use of stock options uh, and the uh, both explosive growth in shareholder remuneration and the preoccupation with share prices on the part of the, on the part of senior executives. Now, I made to, in response to Brad, the point that it's very difficult to uh, work out whether you're creating shareholder value or not. That, if you believe seriously in the efficient market hypothesis, as many economists and most economists of the time do and did, do and did, uh, then you don't have to worry about that calculation because the market is doing it for you. The stock price at the moment is the best estimate that could be made of the long-term shareholder value that you created. So taking that set of arguments together, that was the basis for focusing management attention on what, what happens to stock prices. And that was what was behind the whole series of corporate failures and disasters which I described. So although it's absolutely right to say that a sophisticated interpretation 
uh, of the Friedman Doctrine takes you into maximizing shareholder value. An over-sophisticated application of the Friedman Doctrine takes you back to saying this is about getting the stock price up. And what happened in the next 20, 30 years was corporate executives did focus on getting the stock price up, which for short periods they did. I described how Welch did, I described how Greenbury did, I described how ICI did. We saw that, play, that, that playbook being played over and over again, always with the same, in the same way. You get this short-term sugar rush because there are things that you can do that make the business look better in the short run. And they don't, mostly they don't, certainly they don't always, and they don't often work out well in the long run. Well, the way I would respond to John, in my view, maximizing shareholder value is a little bit like going to sleep. If you're having trouble sleeping, the solution is not to lie in bed and say, I'm gonna figure out how to sleep. It's to do something else. And I think John is right. What companies need to do is think about making their business as effective as possible. Warren Buffett has often said, you create a great business by watching what's going on on the field, not keeping your eye on the scoreboard. Because the market may get things right, may get things wrong. You really shouldn't pay attention. You should do what Jeff Bezos does. And I think what John agreed to is do what you have to do to make a great business. And eventually, a relatively efficient market will recognize you if you're successful in that effort. Greta. I just want to highlight a point that I made already. Uh, I think efficiency is not the only issue for companies and, and markets are not the only criterion they have to take into consideration when they make decisions because they have to be perceived as legitimate. If they are not perceived as legitimate, they will run into all kinds of limitations of what they can do. Just look at the tobacco industry. Their legitimacy is perceived as very, very low. And in return for that, they are limited in what they can do by a lot of laws that other industries do not have. A lack of legitimacy makes you less efficient, creates costs. Um, and that is a purely ethical thing. It's how you are perceived in how you do things. Is it perceived as appropriate or not? So this is something, if you don't keep it in mind when you make decisions, um, you create paradoxically pro uh, profit problems. So you have to manage efficiency, profit, but also legitimacy. Well, I think Guido has made a very important point there, which is what has happened. And it's uh, to some degree directly attributable to the Friedman Doctrine is to undermine the legitimacy of business in the eyes of the public. We have this paradox at the moment that Google and Facebook each have two billion customers each. That's more than anyone has imagined any business having in the history of the world. And yet I can read every day an article slagging off Google and Facebook. We're in this world where we love the products, but we hate the producers. And there's something very wrong with that. And what business ought to be saying is not the social responsibility of a business is to maximize its profits. It's saying the social responsibility of business is to make the contribution which business can make to the community, which is producing goods and services that people want. It's providing good returns to investors. It's uh, providing satisfying employment for the people who work there. It's making a proper contribution through corporate taxation 
to the other activities of the community. That's what responsible business in my book is about and for. And business has presented a description of itself. And Friedman takes a lot of responsibility for this description of itself, which is both repellent and false as a description of how good business actually operates. I could make a, an entirely opposite argument for the deterioration of trust uh, in businesses, though, which is that um, rather than kind of a focus on profits, you're, I think you'll find that most of these large Silicon Valley tech giants um, are very much focused on their social responsibility, certainly in their outward pronouncements. I mean, I think Google listed when it listed its corporate motto as do no evil. And these places are full of what they call social justice warriors these days. It's deep within their culture to take social responsibility very seriously. And yet trust in these organizations is falling and falling. And so you could take the opposite view and say that people just don't buy it. And they, they, they just don't see uh, a real world link between what these companies say and what, and what they do. Um, uh, and John, if you could just come back and then Joanne. Yeah, and that's not very surprising. Uh, one of the most incredible things happening at the moment is I don't know whether anyone on this uh, Zoom has followed the case of, uh, it's a class action led by Arkansas teachers against Goldman Sachs. And the basis of the class action is that Goldman Sachs ethics statement said, and still does say, our clients' interests always come first. Now, the, the, the case being brought by Arkansas teachers and others is that essentially they were misled by this statement into thinking this was a respectable company which would be a rewarding investment for Arkansas teachers and others. The defense which is being put up to this, and don't get me wrong, it's the defense is to say that actually, is to provide a list of over 30 occasions on which conflicts of interest in, within Goldman Sachs were reported adversely uh, in the papers. So defense which is producing this list of things in order to argue that the revelations that Goldman Sachs did not follow its ethics statement was well-known public information that market participants didn't take the statement seriously. Uh, and it's what is in legal terms called a mere puff. And the US Chamber of Commerce has actually weighed in with an amicus curiae brief in defense of Goldman Sachs, which says all companies make statements like uh, integrity and honesty are at the heart of our business. And they, says, they say this actually almost defies belief uh, that if the case against Goldman were to succeed, companies would in future make these statements at their peril. Well, they should make them at their peril. They should make them, they should make them at their peril. And the way of dealing with it is not to say that these things are, are mere puffs like Red Bull gives you wings or Heineken refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach, which is what they are claiming. It is to say that these statements ought to be true about the business and people ought not to make them if they're not true. And if they're not true, they probably ought not to be in business very long. But that's what I mean by saying business has uh, presented itself as being both repellent and false. 
And that's why people do not want business near their hospitals, their schools, uh, and, and indeed their water supply and their electricity. So you Business see, Caroline, uh, inflation is a problem. <laughs> Sorry? Inflation is a problem, just a different kind. Joanne, did you want to yeah. make a comment? Yeah, just, just to comment on that, there's, there's another way to look at your question. And, and one of the reasons why people don't like these companies is not only the size, it, it's not their social responsibility statements alone, but it's also the mere size and wealth of these companies in a time of growing inequality. So I think there's, there are social reasons why everybody's getting very nervous about these large companies, as well as, of course, some of the political reasons, certainly in the US, that these companies are, are impinging on things like our privacy and other things. But I, I'm glad that John brought up the, the Goldman case, because that is amusing. And I think every company on Wall Street is probably looking at their ethics statement to see if they can live up to it. And, you know, it is a lesson to learn. I worked, I did a case study, uh, a Harvard case study many years ago of a company that had their ethics codes on these beautiful big wall posters all over. It was a manufacturing concern. And it started with our employees come first. And as soon as I finished writing the case study, they shipped 500 jobs overseas. So, you know, <laughs> The question is, what, what, what is our understanding of what companies say to people? Great. I, I want to address some of the uh, audience questions now. I'm going to completely mangle this name, Romulo Alves. Apologies. Um, some people have suggested empowering stakeholders, such as employees on the board, boards of trustees, etc., representing broader society. Do you see this as part of the solution? or is potentially problematic due to conflicts of interest among stakeholders themselves. Does anyone want to tackle that? I'll, I'll just say one thing about it and turn it over to my, my colleagues, but it certainly causes a big agency problem. And when you say employees, who, what employees? How are they elected? Why is it employees rather than customers or suppliers or distributors? Uh, in a John Kay type of outlook, how do you actually make this work and work effectively? seems like it would be very difficult. John? I basically agree with that. I don't think the way you make uh, business take proper account of its stakeholders is to have representatives of all the stakeholder groups uh, on the board to say, we in the, in the shop floor at X think the following. Um, indeed, uh, most most people outside the management of the company and don't have the expertise to make the kind of decisions about the corporate strategy of the company uh, that are needed. What we need is professional managers with a proper sense of the responsibilities of the job. And that's what I think, uh, certainly what I would be arguing for. Guido? If you look at some economies who are working very well, like the German economy, what you have there is uh, a, a power balance between governments, worker representatives and corporations. Um, so I think the idea of giving power to workers to have a say in how companies make decisions uh, isn't that bad. It works. It works under certain conditions. Um, and in Germany, you have a good example for that. But we probably have to go much further. Bruno Latour, the sociologist, has recently written a book on the climate crisis where he says, well, we have to give stakeholder rights to nature. 
otherwise they will never have a, a say on board. So it can be the river next to my factory, it can be a mountain, it can be a species that disappears. We have to give a voice to these actors as well in our decision-making, if we don't currently. Great. Okay, we are actually, I'm afraid, running out of time. So does anyone want to go first in perhaps summing up their thoughts on this topic or from this conversation? Well, I'll, I'll start because I started the first time, but <laughs> given what I've heard, it's my view, we have some major problems related to business and society. And I think climate change is probably at the top of the list, but there's, there's many others. But I just don't see, particularly in light of John's comment about Goldman Sachs and the Arkansas teachers, how turning more power over to corporations and asking them to make these decisions is the right way to go. I think we need fundamentally rethinking certain government policies, uh, including those dealing with climate, and we should start there. Great, thank you. Who wants to go next? Well, since I was second, I might as well go next. I'll, I'll follow in Brad's uh, thinking here. Um, well, first of all, I, I learned a lot from this conversation, so I want to thank my uh, co-panelists here. And I guess, you know, there, there's a couple things that gel together that really have to do with how we construct certain ideas. Uh, John, you talked about great companies and what great means. And Brad, you mentioned something similar. What great means is really what's on the table. Does great mean taking into account the obligations that businesses have to their stakeholders? And Guido, you mentioned stakeholder rights. I actually prefer to think of it in terms of duties because rights are a political kind of construction. And so while I know that it has to be a kind of two-way notion, part of what Friedman's talking about is what is the business's responsibility. And with stakeholders, they do have responsibilities to different stakeholders and they, the stakeholders have that standing. Whether they're on committees or not like they are in Germany, I, I leave that question aside. But so, so I think what, what there is a consensus on is that a great company has to be one that functions well and serves the purposes of uh, giving goods and, and services to society, but, great, but it's a loaded term. And I think it's a socially constructed term in terms of what society expects from business and what their obligations are. Uh, we haven't talked about social media, but the awareness that people have of what businesses do nowadays is unprecedented. Uh, for good or for evil. And so I think you can't, you can't be a socially responsible business unless you're in business. That's one thing. And you certainly uh, can't ignore social responsibilities in business today because it will eventually be a detriment. So I think that in terms of Milton Friedman, I still admire some of the questions he's put on the table that I think are serious and that we've touched on here. Uh, but I don't think many companies can afford to follow his advice in today's world. John? I think Guido has taken the German case, which uh, is particularly interesting because Article 14 of the German Basic Law, uh, which is effectively the constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany, says that uh, property confers obligations and must be used for the public will. 
And interestingly, that means as far as Germany is concerned, Friedman's article fails at the first hurdle because his very first paragraph is a comprehensive denial of that. One of the problems we have is that much of this debate has been conducted. It hasn't been true this evening, uh, but it is if you read uh, if you read it in both the academic and the popular literature, much of this debate is conducted as if the only country in the world was the United States of America, and it's not. And Guido? Maybe I finish by saying what I always say to my MBA students, and some of them are here listening to us, so they will hear it again. You have to imagine this neoliberal ideology as a narrative very similar to the narrative of the ancient Greek when they believed in the gods on uh, on some hills or whatever. It's a narrative that is, for a certain moment in time in history, believed by many people. But it is not more based on facts than the story of the gods in, in the ancient Greek mythology. Uh, it, it says that markets regulate themselves. It says that markets are creating welfare for everyone. It says that we are rational, egoistic actors. It says that governments are bad. It's all kind of beliefs um, that are put together into one narrative and it's a myth it's a fairy tale and we need a new one i'm not saying it's it's worse than other fairy tales it's just one that we need to replace because it is running out of steam right now great thank you um, i wasn't going to but maybe i'll allow myself a brief comment as well um, well first of all it's been absolutely fascinating uh, and i also have learned a huge amount in the last hour thank you so much um, but I guess on that last point, I would say that, you know, we do tell ourselves stories. And one story we've been telling ourselves for at least 2000 years, if not, if not longer, is that um, the, the entity that navigates the moral landscape that is, you know, the world is the individual. And the individual was the, the hero of the Bible and, 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 the, and the protagonist of the ancient Greek mythologies all the way up to about 30 years ago when it became the collective or maybe a hundred years ago. And so perhaps, uh, perhaps narratives do evolve. Perhaps they need to evolve, particularly since the world's changed so much. Um, thank you so much, everyone. It's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like we need to do a follow-up and perhaps we shouldn't wait 50 years. Um, but it'd be great to do it in person at some point as well. <laughs>